We're going to jump into uh, Revelation. Today is our last sermon on Revelation before we take a little break here this summer. And the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be doing an Ask Anything series. And so questions that you all have submitted, uh, we're going to be uh, wrestling through, working through some of those questions. And so after today, we will essentially be halfway through the book of Revelation. However, when we pick things back up in the fall, uh, we'll be moving a bit more quickly through the last half. So as we get going this morning, just a little review as to where we've been. So Revelation begins by telling us it is primarily a revealing of Jesus. And so the intent of this book is to show us Jesus. And so we're getting Given these continual pictures of Jesus' sacrifice, of his power over everything, and many other aspects regarding Jesus. But the uniqueness of Revelation is it tells us about Jesus through symbols, through these pictures that we're getting, crazy pictures at times. Now, the beginning and end of Revelation have some literal components, but a literal approach to reading this book, which is how we've been trained to read most everything in life, quickly becomes problematic in Revelation. Now, in this book, we've been confronted with the never-ending reality that God alone is to be worshipped. No one else. God alone is to be worshipped. We have also seen God's love for his church, how he welcomes messy sinners like each of us, and how he's then willing to go to battle to fight for us and against our greatest enemy, which is sin. Also, the wrath of God is going to be unleashed. Yet today, he is showing patience. He is showing restraint. He is not pouring out his wrath in a full way. And so this is an opportunity, as we've talked throughout this series, this is an opportunity for us, for all of humanity, to turn away from sin and to turn towards Jesus. So I hope you guys are seeing as we walk through this book that is unbelievably meaningful for us today. It has so much to help us make sense of the world that we live in here and now. It's not just written for a future time. It's written for us today. Now it might take some work for us to translate these symbolic pictures, but it is so helpful for us to understand uh, better the spiritual realm that is existing all around us here and now. Today, we're looking at the seventh seal and trumpet and bowl. So we've talked about the seals and trumpets and bowls in previous weeks, and we've seen how they are descriptions of the world we live in and how they are describing events that have multiple fulfillments throughout history. And as it pertains to the seals and trumpets and bowls, we noted how they are speaking about God's wrath. We talked about the birth pains, okay, the birth pains of God's wrath. So they're talking about God's wrath, but they're also talking about deliverance and how we, we are able to get deliverance through Jesus from God's wrath. Now, given this reality and the explicit nature that the Bible talks about our days today, being the final days of history, we should live in light of Jesus' soon return. This has been the case throughout the church age. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead and went to be with his father, these are the end days. 
Now, these sevens that we're talking about today, the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, are describing the final culminating events that are leading up to Jesus' return. And in light of that, we're also going to see how these final climactic events are closely tied to what Jesus accomplished on the cross as he died for our sins. So let me read these verses that we're looking at this morning, and then I'll pray for us. Revelation 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now Revelation 16 the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. God, thank you for... Your word, I pray it would teach us this morning. Please bring clarity to us as we work through these passages. Help us to understand what it is you want us to understand and how these words written many years ago are applicable to us today. So God, by your Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Change us, build our faith, help us to see Jesus and help us to live accordingly. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so we've talked repeatedly about how the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are related. And we see a really strong correlation between these sevens as we look at the surrounding phenomena being described in each of these passages. This description given in all three of these is exacting. 
there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then in the last two, there is the addition of significant hail that is occurring as well. Now, considering these descriptions, we should see how this is speaking to the dramatic nature of what is going on at this time. The whole setting is screaming God's wrath. The time has come. Now, later in the fall, we're going to explore greater details of the final battle, if you can even call it a battle at that time. But what we're confronted with here is the all-consuming nature of God's wrath. It is above. It's coming down through the lightning and the thunder, and it's below. It's, it's seen in the earthquake as well. It is all-encompassing. All now, I personally have never experienced an earthquake, but I remember as a kid feeling queasy, almost as though like hair was standing up on my neck, uh, being scared when strong storms would roll through, especially in the spring. And I see this even now with my own kids as well, how some of them will cling to mom and to dad when the wind blows and the lightning cracks. But what's being described here in these verses is on a completely different level. This strikes unmatched terror, fear inside of people. And on one hand, this is a terrifying thought, but it's intended only to be terrifying for those who have not trusted in Jesus. For those who have, we have read previously how Jesus' church will stand in the face of God's wrath. So if we go back to the sixth seal, this is what we read. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So it ends here with that question. Who can stand? And then right after this vision, John is given a vision of Jesus' church. Jesus' church on earth and Jesus' church in heaven as well. They are the ones who are going to be able to stand in the face of God's wrath. We, as Jesus' church, are the ones who can stand. But all of this then, it also we, we get this emphasis on how is it that we stand? which is applicable for us in the here and now, today. These descriptions of natural phenomena that we're reading here in these verses about the earthquake and the thunder and the peals of lightning give us clues as to how it is that we are to stand. Because any of us, when we think about these strong storms, God's wrath coming at us, none of us physically can stand in the midst of that. So how then is it that we stand? Paul, who wrote much of the first or of the New Testament, wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He emphatically states there, it is of first importance that we stand in the gospel. We stand in the face of God's wrath by standing in the gospel. When we look at the crucial part of the gospel, the cross, we're going to see similar descriptions as it pertains to the natural phenomena being described uh, to God's 
God's wrath, to the, to the descriptions of God's wrath in the sevens that we're reading about here today. So uh, when Jesus was on the cross, darkness consumed the land in midday. And there was a great earthquake signifying the momentous act that Jesus was carrying out at that moment. So in that moment, those who were participants in killing him looked at the scene and they declared with everything going on, truly, this was the son of God. But the beautiful reality on the cross is we find Jesus in that moment taking upon himself God's wrath. And so the beauty of the gospel here is that Jesus is our wrath deter. He takes God's wrath upon himself. He is the sole reason why and how we can stand in the face of God's wrath upon this world. Because we're trusting not in ourselves, not in our own strength. We're trusting in Jesus and his forgiveness. We're trusting in his record on our behalf, not on our own acts. Now, many will look at the cross and they will giggle at its foolishness or dismiss it as ridiculous. But those to those who understand what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross, what that means for us here and now, we understand that that's the linchpin. That is the crux that is crucial for the whole of life. Now, one of the stark contrasts Revelation gives to its readers is where God's wrath falls because it's going to fall it has to fall it will fall somewhere it's going to fall either on Jesus or it's going to fall on sinners now if we take this seriously and read it at face value it's a really easy option but the reality is even for sure for non-christians but even for many Christians in the day-to-day in our busyness and in everything that's going on in our lives we oftentimes don't take this seriously. We don't take God seriously as we should. We don't, we don't think about God's wrath in the way it's talked about in the Bible. It's almost as though it's like a fable, like something that we would watch on the big screen. This is one of the reasons why Revelation is written in the way that it's written. It's written in such a way to grab our attention. This is not fantasy. This is real. This has happened and is happening and will happen. This is truth in its essence. And so we stand by belief. We stand by believing the gospel, by believing in Jesus, who he reveals himself to be, by believing in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. The fact that he takes our wrath upon himself. This is how we stand. I mentioned that one of the main themes in these sevens is wrath. But this also leads us into another theme, which is that of worship. In the seventh seal, it speaks about the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints and how they are rising 
for God. Now notice this is also occurring at the altar, which if we go back to Revelation chapters four and five, when Jesus ushers us into the throne room, this is the altar that is existing there before God. And, and all of this then, what's going on here is pushing us towards this focus on worship. But then we also get two contrasting, maybe not contrasting, but complementary pictures of worship in the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. So when the seventh seal is opened, we read there that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What happened at the cross and what will occur when Jesus returns again is the ultimate breath taker. It's the ultimate silence inducer. Now remember in John's vision, if we go back, what, what we see is there's this consummate loud praise of the one who is sitting on the throne. It, it's constant. People are bowing down. There is singing. There is is this constant thunderous praise aimed at the one who is sitting on the throne. But what happens here then is that all of this full-throated worship of God is brought to a screeching halt. Silence for a half hour in heaven. Silence is not something that we're really good at, oftentimes nowadays. When I was thinking about this, it, it made me think of Psalm 46:10, where it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We live lives that are filled with noise, filled with busyness, filled with darkness, with many concerns that weigh us down. We live lives that have an ample amount of boasting. Maybe not spoken verbally, but we oftentimes feel this in our own hearts. I was reminded of this this past week, just this difficulty for us in silencing ourselves and quieting ourselves and slowing down. Casey and I had to run to Target. And so I just dropped her off. She ran into Target and was picking up something really quickly. And I noticed how quickly it was just like this natural reaction for me to grab my phone and begin looking at text messages and emails and news. And it just struck me in that moment how natural it was for me to just grab my phone. And I was thinking about this. Why? Why is it? so difficult for us to just set whatever whether it's a phone or it's it's something else it's difficult for us to just sit in the silence and i think a big part of it is because when the silence comes we have to begin to reckon with the weightier things of life the things that really matter and those can become uncomfortable for us. But God tells us through Psalm 46 that we need to do this. 
we need to remind ourselves we are not God. God is God. We are not. We are horrible gods. At the end of the day, he will be the one who is exalted among the nations, the tribes, every tongue. He and he alone. He is the one who will be exalted in the earth. And so it's beckoning us in our everyday lives. Is this what it looks like for us? Is Jesus being exalted in the small and the mundane? That's the intent of our lives. That's what God is calling us to, to orient the whole of who we are around the gospel. So there's clearly a time for us to quiet ourselves. Conversely, we read in the seventh trumpet that there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And then those sitting around God's throne break out in this thunderous worship of God, remarking of God's greatness. So as there's a time for us to quiet ourselves, there's also a time when we need to loudly declare to our souls who God is. We need to unabashedly sing about the wonders of God and how his grace has changed us. To remind ourselves of his salvation, that he is the one who caused it, and be amazed by that reality. We are not saving ourselves there's nothing we do to commend ourselves to God, to impress him. He causes us to be born again. He alone is the one to be exalted. And this is what we need. This is why we need to gather corporately. To remind one another, to sit under gospel preaching, where it's explicitly pointing us to Jesus to sing songs with one another, to hear ourselves sing, to hear other people sing of the greatness of God. We need to be reminded of these realities. Okay, a couple of observations I want to make here regarding the seventh trumpet. It speaks of Jesus as the one who is and who was. Did you guys catch this? as we were reading through this the first time, how this is different from other constructions of this that we've read previously in Revelation. It no longer includes the phrase, and who is to come. Jesus has come. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has invoked this age that the historical prophets had foretold many years prior. These are, as I said Previously, these are the end days. The, the days when we can look at tomorrow and wonder, is Jesus going to come and take his bride home? Also, John sees in chapter 11, verse 19, it says God's temple in heaven was opened. This sounds very much like what happened at the cross. In Matthew 27, we read there, the curtain of the temple, this is as Jesus is on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
through Jesus' death on the cross, access has been made available for sinful humanity to draw near to God. The barrier that separated us from God has been removed. Where we were excluded, we are now welcomed. We can now enter into that place where only God was allowed, and Jesus is the one who ushers us in. But the only way in is through Jesus, through believing in his sacrificial death on the cross and receiving forgiveness of sin from him. So what we, what we see throughout the Bible is we see this continuity from beginning to the end. We see these prophets of old foretelling of these days that we're living in right now. We see these promises that God gives over and over. We see things happening on the cross that are being talked about here in Revelation as well. The continuity of what we see in the Bible should bolster our confidence in its coherence. The Bible is not a bunch of disparate stories. It is one story interconnected in so many ways. And we see this continuity again in the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. This is pronouncing the end of spiritual plague on earth. God is putting an end to all that is wrong in this world. And this pronouncement is reminiscent of the one Jesus made as he died on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 30, right before dying, Jesus exclaimed there, it is finished. The end has arrived. Jesus was announcing the end of the power of sin. Sin has no power over us except what we give it. The gospel frees us from sin and all of its power. The gospel is far more powerful than sin itself. Jesus is also announcing here the end of all of our striving. We no longer need to try and make ourselves spiritually clean. As Israel demonstrated throughout their history, as they failed over and over to obey God's Ten Commands for them, humanity is wholly unable to make ourselves clean. It is impossible. We do not move toward God without Him moving towards us first. We can't make ourselves clean or righteous. We are totally dependent on Jesus to make us clean, to make us righteous. We cannot save ourselves. Our only hope is for Jesus to chase after us and to do everything necessary, everything necessary, so that we might be saved. In exclaiming, it is finished, Jesus is saying he stripped sin and evil of any authority that it possessed. Satan has been thrown down. Satan has been exposed. All of his lies, his smoke and mirrors should be clear to us. He is a far cry from the many chest-thumping assertions that he makes about himself. He parades many enticing things in front of our eyes. Beauty, pleasure, comfort, money, 
entertainment, all of these things are fleeting. They are fading. They are short-lived. They will ultimately disappoint us. All of these things are why spiritual plagues are poured out on earth, why God's wrath is promised. As I was writing my sermon this week, it was right at this point that I came across this quote that I feel really helpfully summarizes what I've been pushing for in this sermon. It says, seals, trumpets, bowls, and Jesus' death on the cross. So there's bowls and cups of wrath talked about in the Bible. There's darkness here. There's earthquakes. There's the proclamation, it is finished. There is silence in heaven, which at times communicates this idea of being feeling forsaken from God. All of these are associated with Jesus dying on the cross and our image symbolically in Revelation's sevenths, which are outpourings of God's wrath. This tells us that wrath has already been poured out for us. As we look ahead and hear of the terrifying judgment that awaits, we need not fear it in any way. Jesus has already bore God's wrath for us on the cross. Reminded of this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says there, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, we were by nature, when we were born, children of wrath. That's who we were. That was our identity. But two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God, because of his love, because of Jesus' willingness to take God's wrath upon himself, we no longer need to live in fear as children of wrath. We are simply children, beloved, friends, brothers and sisters. We are regarded. We are cared for. We have been served and pursued and rescued. We have been shown mercy. We have been loved. And the gospel message is intended to be so stark so stunning that these realities never get old for us. Grace is amazing. The fact that Jesus went up on a cross and died for us is intended to stun us, to grip us, to the extent that the whole of our lives are oriented around these realities. When we end our sermons, we, we do what we call gospel application. And this is intended not to be a call for us to apply the sermon in such a way that we're supposed to be doing these things, like formulating this long list of to-dos so that God will be happy with us. That, that's not the point of gospel application. The point of gospel application is, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done 
for us. Be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done. Believe in that. Rest in that. Don't walk out of here thinking about all the things you're called to do. Be thinking about all the things Jesus has done for you. When that grips us, the doing of our lives in our lives will take care of itself. But first and foremost, the gospel must grip us. It must take hold of our hearts. And so one point of gospel application for us today, Jesus has taken wrath upon himself. We were born in such a way that we deserved God's wrath. We live our lives in such a way we deserve a tsunami of God's wrath to come at us. Every single day, the fact that we are upright, that we are breathing, is evidence of grace. Jesus has taken your wrath upon himself. This is why we talk about making this well-worn path to the cross. We need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. Our actions, our doing, put Jesus on the cross. And yet Jesus also willingly went there for us because of mercy, because of love. This is the best news this world has ever known. Rest in it, believe in it, keep going back to it, Keep reminding yourself and one another of it. Believe the gospel.